Hey everyone, welcome to episode 51 of Coffee Talks with Mike. It's great to be with you all. Um, I'm sorry it's been a few weeks since we've done an episode together. It's been a wild few weeks for me. Um, I recorded a few extra episodes um, to go out while I was on vacation um, so that we wouldn't miss a beat. And then, you know, as John Lennon said, life's what happens when you're making other plans because I got COVID on vacation. And so uh, it actually wasn't terrible at all. It was nothing compared to the first time I had it back in 2020, um, which is really positive. But my throat was totally out of whack. I just I couldn't do an episode for sure. And so I was like, oh, it's all right. Well, I'm going to get it back this coming week. And then my computer like has been crashing nonstop, and, which was really exciting because I had a sermon to write last weekend. Um, so it, it was just a really big frustration. So it's a long story, not worth getting into now, but we're working on the laptop fix right now. It's functional. So hopefully this episode goes out like normal. Uh, so yeah, that's what's going on, been going on for me. Um, now we're transitioning out of summer back into our fall routine here at the church. So, um, as much as I like summer, like it really is a good indicator of like seasons of life. And I know like for most adults, like your life doesn't change too drastically in the summer. It's more for kids and students, which I'm no longer a student, which is amazing. Love that. Um, but my schedule is so tethered to, you know, our teenagers schedules, which means when their schedules become erratic in the summer, so does mine. So, for example, today I spent three hours for our high school breakfast that turns into a high school lunch because we're just sitting around because no one has anywhere to be. Um, whereas next week, it'll be a firm hour and 15 minutes. And rather than nine to 12, it'll be 630 to 730. You know, so those kinds of things. I really look forward to the shifts um, back into more structured rhythm, which ironically kind of goes with the kind of gist of today's book and title. Now I'll tell you as much as I have been bummed that I've missed a few episodes here and there, I also haven't been reading nearly as much as I thought I would be this summer, which is a bummer. Um well I should clarify, I'm I am reading a lot. I'm just not reading as many books that are like um conducive for doing the podcast for, right? Some fictions and this and that. And I think my brain just needed that that time to unwind and unplug. I've been reading stuff. I've, you know, I've been finishing up Letters to Malcolm, but you know, I don't want to force you guys to hear that every week. And so I'm switching up this week a little bit. Um, but yeah, so all that to say, I think things are working out exactly the way they're supposed to work out. And that's that's pretty good. So today, uh the book, as you can see in the title, is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And this is by Eugene Peterson. Again, I think we've done some work with uh, Peterson already uh, from Hallelujah Banquet. But that book is much different in that it's almost like collected essays or like mini sermonettes as opposed to like a book that is from start to finish about something. Now, Peterson is most well known, I think, for modern. And by modern, I mean like people today, like rather than 10 years ago. But currently, I think most people know his name and associate it with the message, you know, um, version of the Bible. But Peterson is like a really like, just impressive thinker. And I, I can't recommend him enough. I kind of 
avoided him for so long because I grew up in a church that really poo-pooed the message. But now, like, because of different classes and things, I've had to encounter his work, and I'm just blown away by some of his, some of his insights. So today, um, I want to unpack this book that I picked up. This is one of his more famous works. Uh, let's see. It was originally written, oh, my goodness, is this 1980? And the second edition is from 2000. Yikes. I know some of you are like offended right now. They're like, 1980 wasn't that long ago, Mike. Listen, it was 42 years ago. Okay, take it easy. That's longer than, than I've been alive. So, um, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, subtitled Discipleship in an Instant Society. How interesting. Even if this was written in 2000, which that was the second edition, I wonder if Peterson had any idea what that term instant society would mean and come to mean. Um, but today I just want to look at chapter one. It's not too long. Let's see if I can make this episode not too long as a result. Uh, and chapter one is just called discipleship. What makes you think you can race against the horses? And he's got two of these quotes. So that, that title, what makes you think you can race against the horses actually comes from Jeremiah twelve five. I don't know the context of that chapter, but, um, you'll see how that works in the broad scope of the book. And then the title of the book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, comes from this quote from Nietzsche. The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction, thereby resulting, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. So in heaven and on earth, there should be a long obedience in the same direction, which will result and has always resulted with something that has made life worth living. And that's from Nietzsche's book, Beyond Good and Evil. Now, frankly, I've barely read any Nietzsche on his own, but he's quoted in just about every one of these books somewhere, one way or another. So um, take that for what you will. It gets a bad rap, I think. But discipleship. Now, this book is all about discipleship, all about being lifetime learners, being followers of some sort. But how can you be a follower of Jesus well in an instant society? Now, again, Peterson's writing about this in 1980, so you can import some more context and ideas into this, but this still rings true. Um, so he starts off the book and starts off this chapter talking about the world not being a friend to grace. And how when we try to pursue the virtue of grace in our lives, people around us are not necessarily supportive. We see that in the news. We see that, you know, people are gracious to their team, but never to the opposition. Um, but the issues we see in the way that the world functions revolve around the way that sin impacts us and temptation impacts us. And so... Um, I'm going to read like I usually do. I'm not going to read the first paragraph, but I'm going to read the third one here on the first page. Um, he says, each generation of the world has to deal with it in a new form. World is an atmosphere. It's a mood. It's very hard for a sinner to recognize the world's temptations, just as hard as it is for a fish to discover the impurities in the water. There's a sense a feeling that things aren't right that the environment is not whole, but just what it is eludes analysis. 
We know that the spiritual atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope, and corrupts love. But it's hard to put our fingers on what is wrong. So he's talking about just like this this very common notion that one that like I am critical of sometimes, but in the proper sense, I think in scripture and in our conversation about it, so long as we're careful, makes sense. This dichotomy between like world and spirituality, right? Because I think it's wrong to say that there's nothing spiritual in the world, but usually the way that dichotomy functions is like world equals bad, spiritual equals good, right? But in this sense, he's talking about like the culture of the world, right? So using other words like flesh or our impurity or our sin or temptation. Those things keep us from the things that we are supposed to be doing or supposed to be pursuing. Okay, got it. He says, now the world, it's an atmosphere and a mood. I think that language of mood is interesting. He's saying that there's just something about it. And like, uh, I've heard some different discussions from speakers talking about like energies and things like that, but like how... Um, there, there are studies about like how, you know, your, um, your gut instinct, like you can feel when something's off, even though you don't hear anything or smell anything like your body, like when a subconscious level can tell, you know, you're in danger or something like that, or that you're being watched or like how someone can walk into the room and just being cognitively aware of their presence can either boost your mood or like drop it into the gutter. Right, that there's a mood, a vibe, a, a, a something that it's it's hard to put your finger on it, and yet it also totally impacts you. That's what Peterson's talking about here. That in the world there is this mood or this atmosphere, and we're like fish in the water. Like we swim, we live in it. Like you can't live without it, and yet there are impurities in it that impact us, that change us, that affect our mood or our vibe or our lifestyle. And we don't necessarily know exactly what each individual thing is or how they all work together to impact us, but we know that they're there and we know that the results actually happen. So what do we do? And that's what he's saying. He says the spiritual atmosphere of the world erodes faith dissipates hope and corrupts love. Notice it doesn't say blocks faith, erodes faith. It wears it down. Okay. It doesn't destroy hope, but it dissipates it like a, like a mist that is dissipating in the air and doesn't remove love, but it corrupts love. Corrupt is a really strong verb. I think in all, um, areas of life and now i'm getting like nerdy the theology of parts of speech and grammar but like corruption okay like that's bad oh you've been corrupted okay like that's something but like to actively corrupt something i think implies an intentionality like there's no ignorance in corruption like you have chosen to make it bad i think man you know there wouldn't be an episode it wouldn't be a coffee talk with mike if there wasn't lewis but we've got to do a great divorce episode or super episode i don't know because it's an amazing book but he talks about that and elsewhere but that's like the best area i think where he like fleshes out this narrative this uh allegory almost or metaphor of like what corrupted love can look like 
And he uses the example of a mother's love and how it can be the best thing, but that the greatest things can fall the furthest. And um, again, like, I think that's the area where like love, this powerful, beautiful thing. I mean, we say God is love can be corrupted and think about the world around you and the reasons people do horrible things and use love as a justification. That's corrupted. Right. So that's the kind of spiritual atmosphere we're in. That's why we need to be good disciples. So I'll go on a little bit. He says, we assume, you know, in, in this world that we've accepted this notion again, 1980, right? I'm thinking of like the infomercials back then compared to now. He says, the issue is this assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. Thinking like there's literally an entire website. You know, there's Quizlet, there's SparkNotes that summarize the books like this that I'm reading and gives you bullet point format for kids, you know, which I don't think is a bad thing, actually, as long as they're used as companions. But also think about it like the amount of books you'll never read in your life. It'd probably be good to just read like the hour-long version of a 30-hour book in bullet point format. You'll miss so much, but at least you're, you know, planting a seed. I don't know. Goes on. He says, it's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel and the good news. He said, it's terrifically difficult to sustain that interest. Thinking of the parable of the sower, right? The four different kinds of seed that are sowed that uh, grow in different capacities. It's not hard to get a seed to start growing initially. It's terribly difficult to sustain that seed over time and let it bloom. And then even after it blooms and bears fruit, to keep it alive for the next season and the next season and the next season. He says, there's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's very little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. There's little inclination to sign up for an apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians would call holiness. And he's, again, trying to get to the heart of what discipleship is. It's not just this one-time thing. It's not like a short little class. That's why I get a little annoyed um, with like churches that like call certain classes like, oh, that's our discipleship group. Like, yep, we're going through our season this fall, like discipleship 101. It's like, no, you are a lifelong disciple. And I get it. Like you're trying to come up with a snazzy, marketable church term, but it's difficult because like our goal, our calling our identity as image bearers is to be disciples. And he gives us a good definition. It's coming up on the next page of what a disciple is. But it's more than just a one-time thing. It's not like getting your degree in high school or college. The biggest problem with people that get a you know their high school diploma or get a college degree or get their master's is the moment you think, okay, I did it. I'm done learning now. Now I'm going to go into the workforce and go make money. No, you have to be a lifelong learner. I had two middle schoolers in my office last week. They came to say hi and, you know, pick on me, essentially. Um, after VBS, I've got a side note anecdote here. I've got the Irish flag in my office because it's essentially the only nationality that is in my blood at this point. Um, but it's from the two summers I spent in Ireland. And if you don't know, Ireland's flag is three stripes, green, left, white in the middle and orange on the right 
And this stinking middle school kid said, hey, Mike, you're basically the Irish flag. You flip it the other way. Like, you're orange on top. You're super pale. And you always wear green. I was like, wow. Middle schoolers, I'll tell you, they just they beat you up with their words. But one of the comments they made when they came in here, and this is not me trying to brag, but they went, wow. Actually, this is another insult. They went, you have a lot of books. I was like, yeah, yeah, a lot of books. And they're like, you don't really strike me as someone that reads. <laughs> I was like, ouch, okay, gotcha. And then the follow-up is, why do you have so many books? Why do you read so much? I was like, I have to learn. I have to learn to do like my job well, but I think like we're called to learn and continue growing as image bearers. And I don't think that means that every person needs to read a bunch of books necessarily, but the way that you pursue your calling as an image bearer of God in your particular calling, like wherever that is and whatever that is to, you're called to learn. It might not be through books. It might be through people. And and Peterson makes that point. But it's a long journey and it takes time and patience to acquire virtue in our lives to combat temptation, to combat sin, so that we can pursue holiness. He goes on, he says, religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religions understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. Leisure, sorry. Um, we go to see a new personality, to hear a new truth, to get a new experience, and so somehow expands our otherwise humdrum lives. We'll try anything until something else comes along. And I think that's a really helpful, um, I, don't, I don't know, uh, metaphor for how we can often pursue this faith, tourism, right? Like when you go visit a place and you presumably aren't going back, pick a random country, you want to go do all the big sites, right? The exciting places. You want to go to the Colosseum. You want to go to Venice. You want to go, you know, see you know, Giant's Causeway and whatever, like, historical landmarks that are just, like, so picturesque. You want to see the big things. But the people that live there, they don't go see the Colosseum every day, right? They already know what it looks like. They're living the real day-to-day -day lives. They're not tourists. They don't need to get like the one overpriced special food at that restaurant. In fact, when you get around like the real people that live in a place, they go, actually, that thing's not even that good. It's more just a tourist attraction, right? So I think this is a helpful metaphor because like when we think about our faith, like, you know, if you think about it in the grand scheme of life, sometimes we're looking for the tourist attractions of faith the exciting moments, the exciting um, kind of joyful, life-giving activities. And then when all the other stuff starts to happen, go, ah, I'm not so interested in this anymore. Is there another thing I can try that will be exciting and joyful and life-giving? And so Peterson is trying to point to, not, not in an accusatory way to say like, oh, you guys stink because you're leaving when things get hard. He's saying, no, no, no discipleship is obedience. It's a long obedience in the same direction, which means some days are going to be difficult. And in fact, the only way to grow in virtue is to go through difficulties. Like that is where, you know, things are refined. It goes on a little bit. He says, um, you know, everybody today, again, 1980, everyone's in a hurry. 
He says, the people whom I lead in worship, um, they want me to give them shortcuts. They want me to fill, help them fill out the form that will get them instant credit in eternity. They're impatient for results. They've adopted a lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. But pastors are not tour guides. Um, and so he talks about Nietzsche's quote and he says, this line, like this long obedience results in something which has made life worth living. That's the mood that the world does so much to discourage, this long obedience in the same direction. And he goes on, he says, for recognizing and resisting the stream of the world's ways, there are two biblical designations for people of faith that are extremely useful, disciple and pilgrim. A disciple says we are people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We are in a growing learning relationship at all times. A disciple's a learner, but not in the academic setting of a schoolroom, but rather at the work site of a craftsman. We don't acquire information about God, but skills and faith. I think that's really helpful, especially being someone that like has done the academic side, both in you know undergrad and in postgraduate stuff with seminary, that it's not just getting information about God. There are all kinds of ways you can do that. It's about learning the life skills. Um, now, you, I think many of you know my soapbox, my pet peeve about people that go, yeah, that's right. You don't need any academic anything ever. It's like, okay, oh, I can just teach myself if I go online. It's like, yes, that is possible. But you also like are losing the ability to learn from other people in those settings. So it, it's a, it's a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. I don't think it's got to be like this false dichotomy of like either learn it practically or learn it academically, you know, in a classroom, they complement each other. The worst thing is when you have one person that does it one way and refuses to learn anything about the other way. But discipleship is about transitioning from being a Pharisee into being a follower of Jesus, right? Someone that has already learned all the information, but doesn't know how to apply it right? I guess the ideal situation is someone that can do both at the same time, right? Someone that can learn and apply in real time. So this language of being at the work site of a craftsman is, I think, helpful. And he goes on, he says, a pilgrim, now think about what the dichotomy with uh, the pilgrim is, like you're a tourist or you're a pilgrim. He says, a pilgrim tells us we are people who spend our lives going someplace, going to God, and whose path for getting there is the way, Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us he's the way, truth, and life. He says, we realize that this world is not our homes and that we are built for and setting out for the Father's house. Abraham, who, quote, went out of his land, quote, is our ar archetype. And so as pilgrims, like, very Christian word throughout history, like the, almost like a, a holy wandering. Talk about pilgrimages, like, oh, let's go on this pilgrimage. It's a wandering towards something specific, right? We don't even necessarily know the route, but we know where we're going. And it'll take us to some bizarre places. Where we're going is wherever God is. 
well, we think God's everywhere. Okay, well, take that to the next logical place. Okay, well, God is right where I am. Okay, so then the next layer would be a pilgrimage is to go to God wherever God is calling us. And God's going to call us to some bizarre places. Uh, I didn't do a sermon deep dive this week um, for a number of reasons, but uh, the passage I used was talking about like when the paralytic is taken before Jesus by his four friends and they lower him through the building. The last line of that little story is that the people that were there said, we have seen very strange things today. And I was just making the point that like, when you really listen to God's call on your life, when you're embracing that long obedience in the same direction, when you are a disciple and a pilgrim, it's going to take you to some strange places. Don't, don't get it twisted. Like that's exactly what's going to happen. And yet, those are the most impressive and life-giving places you'll ever find yourself. Peterson goes on a little bit and he says, uh, I don't know how to say this guy's name, Paul Tournier uh, writes a, wrote this book, A Place for You, and he says he describes the experience of being in between, between the time we leave home and arrive at our destination, between the time we leave adolescence and arrive at adulthood, between the time we leave doubt and arrive at faith. It's not some instantaneous thing, right? There is in-between time or liminal space is, you know, another phrase we can use for that. Um, those in-between times are where all of the work is done. Uh, I just was fortunate enough to see my family last weekend, see my little nephews, see my parents. It's a six-hour drive. There's a lot of liminal space between leaving one destination and arriving at the other. What happens on that drive? You know, what is it like to, what's the work being done? Is there some discipline to be done? Is there some prayer to be done? Is there some unwinding? Can you unwind on the Pennsylvania Turnpike? I mean, I think it's a mistake to just view that as lost time because you're in a car. So what is that liminal in-between time for? Because the experience of being in between is the majority of our lives. When you're in school, like you start school for the sake of finishing school and all the stuff in between is so you can get to that final moment and you finally get there and then you go, oh, what was all this for? Oh, to get a job. Okay, so now I'm applying to jobs. You're in the in-between place. You finally get the job. You arrived. Why'd you get the job? So I can get paid, but you want to get paid more so you can do more. What? Okay, so, but that never ends. Life is a series of in-between places, and sometimes we mistake our our many destinations. There, there's a a feature on I, I use Apple Maps, which makes me like the minority, and it's not because I think it's the greatest thing ever. It's because I'm a creature of habit. But when you're using your Apple Maps now, you can like you know share your you know arrival time with people in real time and stuff like that. If they have iPhones, I think. But you can also like, I've got my destination set, but you can click into it and add a stop. Life is about adding stops. The long obedience in the same direction, like our destination is wherever God is taking us right now. And we add stops along the way. And some of these stops are going to be little detours. Like you can stop at the rest stop on a turnpike that's like literally off the highway and drops you right back on the highway. But sometimes you take an exit and it's 15 minutes off that exit to find something. Sometimes the the added stops, those in-between moments, are the most important. 
because those in-between moments, what seemed like the most unimportant moment, you're like, why am I here? Why am I in this job? Why am I living in this town? Why am I fill in the blank? You find out in hindsight, like that was the thing that enabled the next thing to happen. The thing that happened seven years ago has prepared you for this moment today, which means there were seven years of liminal space in between space that you're like, what was that even for? And you wake up one day and it's suddenly part of what you're doing. And the spiritual lives that we live, it, that's exactly what they're defined by, is that God does not waste any part of our lives. That God, I know we've talked about Romans 8, 28 together, that God works things together for good. I don't think it's the same as saying that everything happens for a reason, but I think it is the same as saying, or it is saying that God can take all of the raw materials of our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, can take the successes and the failures, morally, ethically, spiritually, and work them together for good so that all of these in-between spaces become like the driving force behind where we're going. They propel us forward in some sense. And that's what makes them so important. And that's why this, this title of this book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, is so important. It's obedience for a long time going the same way. I mean, I think about like, okay, we got to go north. Well, how are you going to get there? Like, what's the best route to get north? You know, and I think about like 30 years ago or when this book came out, I, maybe I'll get to another chapter and he talks about this. But, you know, my, my dad, I give him a hard time. Hi, dad. I know you're listening. But he always used to have like a big old atlas in the back of his you know truck and he'd pull out the atlas. You know, it's like, I don't know, three feet tall and a foot, two feet wide, maybe. And it's just maps, roadmaps, 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 roadmaps. You'd like trace out. I remember MapQuest when that was the new technology. And I mean, I don't even know how people did that well. You know, how are you using printed out MapQuest when you're driving alone? That's crazy. Um, but there was, and and let me just say, as a kid being told, hey, go print out the MapQuest. Oh, that was like the most pressure in the world. I felt like I had the nuclear codes because like if you missed a page of the MapQuest or like anything, it's on you. And when you're driving 20 hours, like to Florida or something, you don't want to find out you messed up the map quest. My point being though, now we've got, you know, real time GPS, just about everyone uses it. Right. And it's constantly updating your route, constantly updating your route for your destination. But what happens when that GPS goes out? Right. You have to like, remember driver's ed and how like all the road signs work. You go, okay, I'm going to New York. So, there's definitely like a great route that's going to get me there the fastest time. But when your GPS goes out, the least you can do, the bare minimum is just follow the road signs for New York to keep going in the same direction. Obey those road signs. They're going to get you there. Now, is there a better way to go? Absolutely. And I think the more in tune we are as disciples and as pilgrims to hear the voice of God in our lives, to hear that still small voice, we're going to find those better routes. But the beauty is that even as much as we mess up, if we just pursue that same direction, that we just obey for the long haul, we're going to get there. 
it, it, you know, the GPS analogy is just interesting because it updates in real time for construction and this and that. You can set it. Do you want tolls? Do you want, oh, this route is five minutes slower, but there's less turns. Ooh, I don't like turning my car. I guess I'll do that one. I wish there was one that was like 20 minutes longer, but no red lights. Okay, yeah, let me do that, right? So there are all these options to customize your route. And I think God does build in some kind of customizability into our lives. Say, listen, this is your destination right now. How you get there? There's there are a few ways you can get there. And God empowers us to make decisions. As disciples, we're not just following for the sake of being robots that do everything the exact same way they've been done. We're following so we can learn how to do these things. We're like apprentices. We learn how to love each other well so that we don't have to like pretend to love each other. We actually do. We learn how to put this long obedience into practice. So to wrap up this chapter, because now I know this is going to go on close to 45 minutes. He's just talking about like how the world doesn't like the in-between, right? We want something quick. Now, this isn't always true, right? Like there are versions there. I, I see definitely some, some, upshoots of of people that recognize it takes time right fitness industry is easy like there's really not a shortcut you just have to eat right you have to work out okay you have to put the time in okay but we're always looking for shortcuts we're always looking for efficiency but efficiency and spirituality are almost incompatible terms i think like when we're living lives our lives the way we're supposed to yeah there's a sense of efficiency that comes with that absolutely but when you prioritize efficiency over relationship, you're in a bad place, right? I, I get it. Like, I, I live that every day. Like, my mom, it's hilarious. She won't mind. There are so many stories my mom said I can't tell ever in sermons or podcast episodes. So just know my mom's a wonderful person. You all deserve to meet. But we laugh. My dad and I laugh. It's like playing charades every day with my mom because she'll start a story just this other weekend when I saw her, she was trying to say, like, my brain, you know, when I'm thinking, I always think, mm. and she put her arms up, and she's like, not parallel, and I was like, linear. She's like, yes! It like It's just always guessing, because my mom has an idea in her head, and we've just gotten so good at knowing what she's trying to say without knowing what she's actually saying, and sometimes she doesn't know what she's saying, and then we give her the word, she's like, yes! The problem is it's conditioned me to go into all the conversations I have with other people. I'm like, all right, let's make this more efficient. You're taking too long to get to your point. Let me uh, say your point for you. And they're like, Mike, I was going to say that. Like, let me talk. I'm like, I'm just trying to save us some time here. Relationship isn't about saving time. It's not about efficiency. It's about relationship. It's about sitting in those in-between moments. It's sitting in the moment where someone is taking forever to tell their story and you're just going crazy and you're like, please get to the point. But there's something about sitting in that in-between moment that builds more relationship, even if that relationship is built around laughing about how long it takes to get to the point. But if we reduce relationship to the efficiency, we've missed something. And I think in the same way, when we think of it, about our spiritual lives, it's not about being efficient. Look at all the things Jesus did. There were moments when the disciples are like, this is not efficient. 
We should be selling that and giving it to the poor. And we, oh, we should start another business, Jesus. We could do all kinds of things. And Jesus is on his way to go heal someone else. And someone stops him. They're like, Jesus, we're going to be late. He's like, oh, someone touched my robe. They're like, you're in a crowd. Of course, someone touched your robe. He was like, yeah, but I felt the power go out of me. Jesus was not rushed. Jesus was doing what Jesus did. I'm sure to a lot of people, if Mike Kramer was there, he for sure would have been going crazy. I would have lost my hair twice as fast going, come on, we got to be more efficient. But it's not about efficiency. It's about pursuing that obedience. It's about pursuing the destination and knowing that you're going to get there so long as you know how to listen for that still small voice. Pilgrimage is wandering for that destination. Discipleship is the life-learning pursuit. He says, the world doesn't want that. The world views the past as a graveyard that we should ignore and the future as a holocaust we should avoid. And so we just embrace the present. There's no payoff for the long term, no payoff for discipleship. There's no destination for pilgrimage. So get God the quick way and buy instant charisma. That's what Peterson writes here. He says, but other voices, they're not more attractive, but they speak more truly. They say something else. And he says this. He says, look, life is an arduous and tragic, tragic struggle. That what we can call sanity, what we mean by not being schizophrenic, has a great deal to do with competence. And that competence is earned by struggling for excellence. We struggle with compassion. That's hard won by confronting conflict and with modesty and patience that are acquired through silence and suffering. And Peterson's quoting uh, Thomas Cezaz, or however you say his last name. He says, this testimony validates the decision of those who commit themselves to explore the world, who mind themselves for wisdom and sing them for cheerfulness. He says, it's all about learning to embrace these in-between moments. That's what discipleship is. You can't just go in. Like there are moments when I was in undergrad and in high school and any kind of schooling, but definitely seminary where I'm like, I feel like I'm wasting time. Can't you just let me like do this all? I don't want to come to 30 lectures. Like let me come to five, take the test and be done. But sometimes just the process of showing up is part of what the journey is all about. He says, finally, he's quoting William Faulkner, to not get confused by monuments. Uh, he says, these things in our lives can be monuments, or, or they, they're not monuments, they're footprints. He says, a monument only says, at least I got this far. While a footprint says, this is where I was when I moved again. And the notion of this book and the notion of discipleship, in Peterson's opinion, and I agree, is that a long obedience in the same direction, it's not about monuments. Monuments are saying that's that's the furthest you got. It's about continuing on, about taking another step, even when you don't know where the GPS is going and you, you lost service. You just know you're going north, so you just keep going north. That's a pretty general direction, but you know at some point, if you just keep obeying that compass, that road sign, North will get you where you're supposed to go. 
Now, I know in our spiritual lives, it can feel complicated. Like, what is God calling us to? Where are we supposed to go? Which place should I live? Which job should I take? Those are big questions. Don't get me wrong. I'm dealing with a batch of college students. The last last of them go off tomorrow uh, to move in. And they're all concerned about figuring out what are they going to do with their lives? Those big questions. What major? What job field? Who do I date? Who do I marry? All these things. It's like, listen... Those are big questions, and you should pray through those questions, discern through those questions. But as you discern through each of them, right, and you go, uh, here's my, you have firm answer or you have no answer. You go through 10 questions, no answer, no answer. What job, what city, what person? Okay, you're going to get to some questions, though, that you can't answer. And on the simplest level, the, the long obedience of discipleship you've been called to are exactly the question Jesus has asked in the New Testament. Master, what is the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you can't answer any of those hard questions, if you're struggling to figure out what to do, that's where you start. And you ask yourself, how do I love God with my heart today? How do I love God with my mind today? And how is that different than my heart? And how do I love God with my strength? How do I love God with my soul? And and how do I love my neighbor? Does my love for my neighbor reflect my love for my God? And which neighbor should I love today? And not in like an ethereal, like mysterious, paradoxical, like, hmm, yes, what is a neighbor? No, think of the people you're going to encounter today. Is it your spouse? Is it your child? Is it your friend? Is it a stranger at work? Is it a person at the gas station? How do you love that person well. Think about that. That that is today's to-do list. And that's your to-do list every day. And once you figure out those things and you do those things and you pursue those things, the long obedience in the same direction of doing those things, it will help shed light on those bigger questions you've got, on the bigger questions you're praying through. Because the long obedience It's about developing those virtues in the in-between. As you ask the same question about that that thing that you wish God would reveal to you for months and sometimes years, that's an in-between time. And being in that in-between time, you're not just sitting around doing nothing. At the very least, you can start with those two great commandments. And doing them is going to shed light on what the next footprint should be but we're always going in the same direction. So this is chapter one of a long obedience in the same direction, Eugene Peterson. Um, we'll see how much more of the book we do. Uh, it's the first book I'm picking up beyond letters to Malcolm. So maybe we'll do a little dance between those two, but um, yeah, hope you have a wonderful day and I hope you can consider what your own journey of faith has been up to this point. What are the places where you feel like you've gotten on some detours? not been going in that same direction. And where are the places God's calling you to now? So think on those things and tune in next week for the next episode. Go in peace.